My next guest on Tea Time is Richard Littledale. He's a minister at Newbury Baptist Church, author and broadcaster. This is National Grief Awareness Week and Richard lost his wife to cancer in 2017 and has subsequently helped others to deal with their own grief. He shares coming to terms with the loss of a loved one and writing postcards from the land of grief and his latest children's book, Marvin the Maple Tree. He has a very reassuring way of explaining how it feels to lose someone close to you, as well as helping others to open up. You can quite often hear Richard on Radio 4, giving daily or Sunday service. Let's find out more. Richard, welcome to Tea Time with me, Ali Monjak. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm okay. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good, good. So it is actually National Grief Awareness Week, isn't it? So it is. Um, yeah. Not so. quite sure why it starts on a Tuesday, but it is National Grief Awareness Week. Yes. It's weird, isn't it? Why does it start yeah. on a Tuesday? Who knows? So <laughs> where, where's the thinking in that? So it is a time to reflect at the moment anyway, isn't it? And I mean, this year, 2020, has given us a great deal to think about. Yeah, and there's never been a time in my lifetime when we're more aware of our own mortality, I don't think. We're more aware that life is fragile. And uh, yeah, it's given us all pause to think, hasn't it, Ali? It has given us all pause to think. And I mean, obviously, in your job as well, because you're uh, a minister, aren't you, for Newbury yeah. Baptist Church? Yeah. So... Um, yes, and, and uh, funerals in the time of COVID have been quite an experience, you know, with only 10 mourners and very difficult, very difficult. Incredibly difficult. And and the thing is, I mean, you actually can speak from first-hand experience of losing someone dear to you. Sadly, I can, yes. Um, in November of 2017, I lost my wife, Fiona, to cancer at the age of 53. Uh, we had been married for 30 years and she had been fighting cancer for 10 years. And uh, we heard in the Easter, so April of 2017, that it was no longer curable. And uh, the next few months rolled on in a rather inevitable way. And uh, on a rainy, drab November morning, I lost her. So, yeah, a lot of personal experience. Oh, yes. And, you know, what, what, what an awful time for, for both of you as well, because, yeah. you know, to lose somebody that you're close to and also, you know, your, your life partner, really. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm grateful I was there for her. Um, uh, she died in my arms and I wouldn't have wanted it any other way, nor would she. But um, tough, tough times. Very tough times and you know I mean still we're, we're sorry to hear that but you know when somebody is perhaps not fit anymore in this world it's very difficult isn't it? Yeah and, and one of the advantages of a long illness is that you do get time to plan you know we talked a lot about the end we talked a lot about what would happen after it um, we were very open about that and I have spent the past three years encouraging other people to do the same uh the statistics for our ability to talk about dying are horrendous in this country you know um, i think three out of five of us would rather not do it and yet it's going to happen to all of us 
so I've been involved with um, one or two national campaigns to, to help people talk uh, both about dying and about grief, uh, because we're very bad at it and we're all going to experience it. Um, so yeah, there were tough times, but we had the advantage that we were able to plan to a degree. I can still remember probably about four weeks before she went, uh, it was a bright sun, Sunday afternoon. She was in bed as she was most of the time at that point. Uh, and we spent the afternoon choosing gifts that she wanted to give to people. You know, and I fetched them from the different cupboards and I then put them in gift bags and she wrote the labels. And actually that was so good for her because she got that little bit of pleasure out of doing it. And then the time came a few weeks later when it fell to me to distribute the gifts. But actually that was a really good afternoon, Ali. You know, that was a, a precious moment in those 30 years of marriage, it really was. Oh, how lovely. And how did it make you feel afterwards, you know, when you had to distribute those gifts? Um, well, I did it on the day of the funeral, so it's kind of hard for me to remember how I felt in a way, because it's all a bit of a blank. But I think there was a degree of pleasure in it, because it was like I was handing over a little bit of her. And knowing that this wasn't my choice about what I thought they might like, but that actually she had been there and she'd written the labels herself and she had derived some pleasure from thinking of their faces when they opened the gifts. So actually it was a good moment on a hard day. It really was. Oh, so, you know, perhaps we should all be thinking about this because you're absolutely right. It's something that we just don't do. We, we don't talk about death. I mean, I've lost both of my parents um, mm. and you know, we didn't really plan for it. You just don't, you don't, you know, inevitably it's going to happen. I mean, fortunately, I say fortunately, my mum died 10 years after my dad. So I think I was a lot more prepared for that. Although, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's a degree to which you can be prepared. You know, it's an absolute body blow whenever it happens. But yes, there there are ways in which you can prepare yourself. I think, and as I say, I've spent quite a lot of time trying to encourage other people to do so, um, because I think it's about, it's almost about personal resilience. You know, I think we can improve our degree of personal resilience by facing this particular inevitability. It's the circle of life though, isn't it? It is the circle of life. Yeah, yeah. none of us are here forever. <laughs> um, no. And, you know, I think, um, I, mean, I then went on to, to write a book all about that experience my first year of bereavement called postcards from the land of grief you know and um part of the reflection of that was realizing that in those last 10 years some of the conversations we had we would never have had otherwise you know when we were in a chemo suite together for eight hours out of a day and she couldn't move we spent more time together than we'd done at any point during our marriage you know, and those were actually quite precious times. Sometimes she couldn't talk, you know, she was too out of it to talk, but it didn't mean that it wasn't a precious moment to be there together. And, you know, our lives are so quick, aren't they? They're so full. And it's good to be able to look back and say, well, look, some of those moments, which I would never have chosen, were investments in in a relationship. Uh, and, And investments like that always pay off, I think. So would you say that, you know, obviously you're still 
in a roundabout way, you are still grieving. You're, you're, it, Always it, will be, Ali. Always. Yeah, it, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And I get that, you know, having lost two, two yeah. parents, it, it's yeah. an ongoing process. You don't learn to get over it. You learn to live with it, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a guy called Ian e. Jackson who's written one of the kind of classic textbooks on grieving. And, and he talks about a barbed wire fence around his ranch in the States. And he talks about a tree, one tree that chafed against it, a young tree and an older tree that grew around it and incorporated the barbed wire into it. And I think that's such a potent picture of how we deal with grieving. It becomes part of us. We don't push it away because we're incapable of doing that. We actually learn to accommodate it within our lives. Uh, and I think it will constantly change. Yours will be different now to when it was a year after you lost your parents. Mine will be different in another three years time. Um, you just learn to live with that, I guess. And it, it's a natural progression, isn't it? And I, I think yeah. that, you know, I mean, we have progressed with mental health in so far as that is much more recognised that we all suffer from some degree of mental health. Yeah. And grief is very much part of that, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole it's OK not to be OK movement, you know, I think has helped with this. You know, we we find it more acceptable to loosen the stiff upper lip and talk about how we feel now than we used to. And and I do think that's a good thing. I really do. Um, yeah, because it, it, it gives people permission to articulate it when they hear you doing it, I think. And sometimes people feel they need that permission. I mean, you you know, just sort of talking about this now, I mean, do you think that more could be done within work environments, within offices, within schools, within organisations? Definitely. Uh, was it last year or earlier this year? Goodness. I think it was last year. You know, I delivered some training, for instance, for my local authority on, on handling bereavement in the workplace. Because I think there are things that particularly managers need to be aware of. You know, when someone comes back to work after losing someone, what do they need? They don't need to be wrapped in cotton wool. Uh, they don't need to be treated like they don't know how to do their job. But they are emotionally fragile. You know, and it's up to managers, for instance, to control the downward workflow, you know, to make sure that it's not too much. Uh, and there are there are all sorts of relatively doable things which could happen in the workplace environment to make it easier for someone to come back to work when they've suffered a major bereavement. Because most of them need to, they need to financially, actually they need to mentally as well. But I don't think we've really thought through how that's done. Although we have with, with major illness, you know, when someone comes back to work whilst recovering from major illness, there are some quite good things in place about a gradual return to work. Not really done that with bereavement. Uh, and I think it's time we did. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's high time we did. I mean, I, you know, I, I can remember, for example, going back to work after losing mum. And it's, yeah, you, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hands up here. We're having a very open conversation. I mean, I think what I did is I threw myself into work. Yeah to deal with the situation and then you know I became busier and busier and busier and and then I think it just becomes brain overload as well because there was a point that I just thought 
do you know what i'm so busy i actually feel quite i don't i don't feel great yeah yeah um yeah, so that needs to be looked at as well doesn't it really yeah because i think people can actually work too hard when they come back and it's either a distraction or it can be guilt people think oh i've let these people down because i wasn't here for months you know so i need to work extra uh, and uh, again it's up to those in management positions to say no you don't need to work extra you know we're glad that you're back let's talk about what's a sensible workload for you so it's a whole culture shift in the workplace isn't it i think uh, yeah, it is a whole, yeah no you're, you're absolutely right it, it is a whole culture shift and it, it does need to come because you know thinking about it you know from our own experiences we we instinctively know that you know because you're not you're so emotionally open to everything really it, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's just trying to to find a balance that is good for you you know grieving yeah. is a process as you say yeah. I mean, I think another part of it is um, you, you don't make good decisions when you're raw with grief. And so, it, again, in the workplace, you need to be making decisions in a kind of collective environment. You know, you shouldn't be left exposed where you could make some silly decision that would cost, you know, your work, your colleagues or your workplace. So you just need to find ways that you can run those decisions by people. Because I, I know, you know, when I came back, I thought, right, I'm back now. I'm me. I'm normal. Well, I wasn't. I was a very fragile version of me and very brittle, you know, and it didn't take much to upset me. and probably didn't take much for me to upset other people either. So. Gosh. So how did you deal with that? I mean, I know how you've dealt with it because you've, you've written and created, you know, postcards from the land of grief, which really helps other people identify and relate to you know yeah. in your video it's it, it it helps people relate to to grief and the fact that i mean obviously being a minister you you have an ongoing belief that the spirit is still yeah, yeah it's still yeah. there which you know I, I totally accept your your point of view right. um so i mean i i think that's a great great way i mean when did you first start thinking, well, I need to help others here? Well, it was interesting because the week before the funeral, so one week after my wife died, I was actually walking early in the morning in the cemetery where she would later be buried. And I felt like I'd been parachuted into a foreign land because I felt like I didn't quite know what was going on around me. You know, I felt that thing if, when you, you feel very awkward, you're in a foreign place, you don't quite get how things are done. You don't quite get where to find things. Yeah, and I had that sensation. So I started blogging on these postcards for the land of grief, partly because it was helpful for me to write them. But they then started attracting quite an audience and then a Radio 4 programme was made out of them and then that made the audience swell again and then, you know, decided to make them into the book. So it started off as a means, I suppose, of helping me but it very quickly became apparent that it was a means of helping others because I think they found in those postcards an articulation of their own rawness. You know? And I think people like the fact that they, the book is painfully and uncomfortably honest. You know, I don't try and say, hey, look at me. I'm a religious person. I got this sorted. I actually said, hey, look at me, I'm a mess, um, but this is how I'm dealing with it. <laughs> and I think people really related to that and are continuing to do so. Brilliant. I, I mean, it, and it's helping so many people, the book, isn't it? 
through the I hope so, Ali. I really hope so. And, and the the kind of responses I'm getting to it indicate, yeah, that it is, you know, people are finding, they're finding a voice in it. I suppose in the same way, you know, I'm not a musical person, but there are certain songs where I think, oh, thank goodness so-and-so wrote that song because it's how I'm feeling. <laughs> I suppose it's analogous to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that's a, a really brilliant thing to be able to go through that level of pain and be able to help others, be able to guide others. And surely that, that must give you some sort of, Comfort. I'm going to say comfort because it's not a reward. It's a comfort, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, you know, when, when you've finished a book, there's a whole process of going back through it and back through it and back through it, you know, doing all the rechecking. That mm. was the most agonising piece of writing I've ever done, you know, because especially writing the chapters about what actually happened. You know, I was run dry by those. I could only write for about 15 minutes at a time without crying. So I would write for 15 minutes, I'd go away, I'd come back. So to then have to keep rereading that was incredibly costly. And at the time, I thought, this is only worth it if it helps someone. It's only worth going through this. And, you know, thank goodness, it does seem to have helped people. So it, to that extent, yes, that, that exercise has been worth it. And, and you know, every time I hear from someone who's been helped by it, you think, well, that's all that matters. I don't care about reviews or sales or I care about it helping people. And I think, you know, when you um, do help people, like you are helping people, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think you also sort of take the, the attitude, don't you, that um, by giving out, you receive enough to yeah. keep yeah. going. So, yeah, I think yeah. that that is um, definitely the way of looking at it, that, you know, you're, mm. you're on a mission to help people. And, you know, hats off to you, Richard. Thank you, because that, that's amazing, really, honestly. Well, I say every time I hear from someone who's been even a little bit helped by it, you think, yeah, OK, that was, that was good then. <laughs> I'm glad about that. Uh, and then yeah. it's, you know, led on to other things during this year as well. So um, wrote a resource for children to help them talk about losing someone. And, uh, yeah, Marvin the Maple Tree. Yeah, rather different tenor, but still the same thing in a sense. I, this all arose, I have a friend who's a very senior children's nurse and quite early on into COVID, I was chatting to her and, and she said, look, you know, really concerned that we've got children who are losing adults to COVID and we haven't got much by way of resources to help them. Uh, now, she knew of a story I'd written years before for children who'd lost a sibling um, called uh, The Tale of the Little Owl. And I said to her, Look, is it time for something like that? And she kind of said, oh, maybe. <laughs> well, literally, I went away that morning uh, and within the next hour, I wrote this thing, Marvin the Maple Tree. Uh, I then put out an appeal on Twitter to say, look, can somebody help me illustrate this and told them what it was for. And within 48 hours, I had an illustrator. And within seven days, the book was on Kindle, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is incredible, really. Um, so unfortunately you can't put a free book on Kindle uh, so we had to charge and then give the royalties to, to the NHS charity uh, but it's also available as a free download and you know a video on YouTube and just to get a resource out there to help the children talk through it. 
I think that's amazing. So tell me the, the story of Marth and the Maple Tree. Oh, I should have got it so I could read it to you. But um, yeah, I mean, th there's a little grove of trees on the edge of a park uh, and there's, you know, there's a big old oak and a big beech and an ash and then there's a little tiny maple tree, you know, and he likes being there surrounded by the others. And then one morning he wakes up and the big old oak tree is on the ground, you know, and he feels like he's not protected by it anymore and the sky looks different because he doesn't look up through the branches anymore he just sees the sky um so it's really talking about loss of a grown-up loss of somebody big in your life uh and then it goes on you know and he he ends up keeping an acorn from the tree so he'll always have a bit of the oak tree with him um yeah and it's just a tool really a tool so that you know with an adult a child can start to talk about how they're feeling about losing a, a big person in their life um, so to say that went out as a free PDF and, and, and on Kindle, uh, I'm still hoping we can get a print version of it done. Um, somebody who heads up school nursing for England said to me, look, you know, we need this in schools. We mm. need it as, as a physical book in schools. So I'm still hoping that's going to happen because I think it's needed. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I can remember my, my children are, are 21 and 18 now, but I can remember when I was pregnant with my daughter and my son was a little tiny, well, he was two, two and a half. She was right. born when he was three. And so to explain, you know, how she got here, we, we had found this yeah. little book, something to do with the egg. And I can't, I can't remember the name of the book now, which is really right. awful, but it really explained to him. And he then understood, you know, the, the, yeah. the person was going to be in his life his little sister was going yeah. to be in his life yeah. and gave him some sort of understanding at such a young age yeah and I think there's something particularly with a very raw subject like grief I think there's something comforting about the medium of story See, if the child wants to they can talk about Marvin the maple tree and the big oak tree but then again if they want to they can talk about the person they've lost it, it kind of gives them the options to either treat it as a story or to treat it as a vehicle to talk about what they're actually dealing with. And of course, children don't always tell you what they're dealing with, do they? <laughs> you know, it all rumbles around inside. And this is perhaps a window to let some of that out. No, I think it is definitely. And I think also, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head. The thing for children is they don't have the experience of life no. No. to understand why they feel like that, what, this means so I think yeah. you know what what you're doing with Marvin and the maple tree is just conveying the situation of, of death of grief of yeah yeah you know he wakes up that morning and he thinks oh something's changed around about me you know something feels different and I feel frightened because you know now I'm the littlest one on the outside nearest to the park <laughs> uh, yeah and it just lets you talk through some of that so uh, again it's been great to see people making use of that so no, definitely. It sounds it. it. Sounds like a brilliant, brilliant book. So how did you get into broadcasting? Was it through your... Uh, well, actually, um, so I used to be a tutor with an organisation called the College of Preachers, and they were having their anniversary service in central London, and they came up with this idea that they would get three different people to preach on the same passage in three different styles. Mm. So I was asked to take part in that as a live Radio 4 broadcast. Following on from that, someone said, oh, you know, you should do the pause of thought on Terry Wogan. So I wrote to Terry Wogan's producer 
who, bless him, you know, after about five weeks, came back to me and wrote me a lovely email. So I'm really sorry, we can't fit you in. But how about Janice Long? I then submitted some scripts to Janice Long's producer. Right. Uh, then ended up doing, um, yeah, Pause for Thought on Radio 2 with her and then Pause for Thought with Sarah Kennedy on The Breakfast Show. Uh, but meanwhile, the Radio 4 producer who'd done that very first programme kind of remembered me. <laughs> and uh, so now I've done, I think every month this year, I've done their daily service and I've done one or two Sunday services as well. Um, and uh, Easter Sunday, they wanted me to do something on that. And I came up with this crazy idea of describing the sunrise live and unscripted. So we were actually on Greenham Common at half past five in the morning with my producer and I with torches looking at the script for the rest of it and then waiting for the sun to come up. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. So, no, never a dull moment in broadcast, hey, Richard? No, absolutely not. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. Well, well yeah. that is fantastic. And also, I, I think, you know, with your broadcasting, you can obviously weave messages in, can't you, to do with grief? Yeah. Uh, and I think the broadcasting that people love is very human, isn't it? You know, the broadcasters that we're all drawn to are the ones that feel like they're just having a chat with us. Yeah. Uh, and I think these kind of experiences add to that because you feel like a real person to the people listening to you or watching you. So. Well, you are. You, you, yeah. I mean, this is this is the funny thing, though, isn't it? Is we're all real people. It's just yeah. how you you. Um, you kind of portray yourself that that's what yeah. it's all about isn't it yeah. and where can people find the book on amazon if they if they look for either postcards to the land of grief or marvin the maple tree they'll find both of them on there and so that that's lovely well thank you bye-bye thank you all right bye